Hi there, welcome and thank you for tuning in. My name is Jason Shoulder and this is Learning to Fail. People are complicated. Musicians are as complicated as comedians. My guest today is Jack Wilhite. Jack is a musical comedian whose act will have you rocking and rolling on the floor laughing. Jack is the ultimate road dog. He's been described, and I think accurately, as a cross between Weird Al Yankovic and an 80s hairband. But he's a talented musician and a funny comedian. Most of us can't claim either of those things, much less both. So, how do you like learning to fail? Have you learned to like failing, or do you fail to like learning? Whatever the case, thank you for listening. Please keep tuning in weekly and help us to reach more people by telling them. I love reading reviews on iTunes. If you haven't already done so, please take a moment to rate our podcast and write a review of your own. It's free, but it's invaluable. Make sure you check out our website, ltfpod.com, and visit our Amazon page every time you buy anything online. By clicking on our link before you shop, you can support the podcast without spending a nickel of your own money. You can also drop a dime on our donation page. Every little bit helps. As always, the most important thing you can do is simply to listen to the podcast and inspire others to do the same. We encourage everyone to try learning to fail, with or without adult supervision. And now it's time for my conversation with Jack Wilhite. He's easy to talk to and even easier to listen to. A good guy with a great story. I'm glad I was there when he decided to tell it. What is the name of your podcast? The podcast is called Learning to Fail, which is a phrase that uh, I discovered uh, when I started, actually before I started doing comedy, back when I was working on a documentary on Bobby Slayton. You know him? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and the producer who knows Bobby from the first time the producer got on stage and one of the first times Bobby got on stage, uh, from San Francisco, like in the seventies or whatever. Uh, anyway, he, he taught me about this whole idea of comedians going on stage and learning to fail. And I just thought that was a really cool way to talk about learning, you know, and it's just such a part of any process. So it sort of opened me up to be able to interview anybody because failing is the one thing we all have in common. So. Well, yeah, you have to do it unless, or else you'll never have the grist to get any better. So few people come out of the shoot as a fully formed thing. You almost have to have the crap beat out of you before you, you know, you ever learned it. You got to hit bottom before you can yeah. back up. Yeah. So how how long have you been doing this? How long have you been doing comedy? Uh, since 1997. What got you into it? it I was, um, I was trying to get a gig writing for TV and, um. Uh, I decided to go to some open mics up in Virginia and I bumped into a couple of people that were doing some weekly rooms, open mic type stuff where they would just let the public come and sign up for stuff. And they had like three or four of those going. So I met the guy that was the key guy and he was like, well, you know, I really, I know you really want to do the writing thing and you've tried stand up a couple of times, but he says, what we really need is somebody just to host some of these extra shows. We need somebody to pay comics do time between comics and just manage, you know, and for a fee, would you be interested in doing that? And I said, oh, sure, a couple nights a week. Right. It started out to be two, then it was three, then it was four, and then it was like a house MC at one of the rooms. 
And, uh, and then before you know it, like two, you know, year and a half, two years has gone by and you've got enough material, which in that day and time, as you probably remember, you had to put a videotape together, (laughs) try to go get real work from people. So, yeah. So I, you know, had made the transition from the corporate world into bartending just to, I think, get into whatever that was, that thing that I was looking to do, whether it was writing or whatever. And so, you know, I just kind of pursued the stand-up thing because it was a money generator in the beginning. Not a lot, but... You know, you get a few MC slots here and there, right. and then you might get a feature slot here and there. But yeah, it's all about getting your teeth kicked in. I found the Jimi Hendrix thing to be the the best way to do it. You know, how Jimmy was here; he was with the Fabulous Flames. He played with, I think, James Brown and Otis Redding and Little Richard and everybody. And he was in New York, and people kind of knew him, and you know, in the village as being a really good guitar player. But he didn't have any juice here in the states till he met Chaz Chandler, who took him to England, where he became the big thing that he was. Now he comes back to the States and he's huge. So I went to the West Coast and worked in the Pacific Northwest as a feature because I was fresh meat. You know, right. they burned through all their guys. So I got some credits out there working for some bookers and some rooms. And then when I came back east, it was easier to try to get, you know, the standard guys to listen to me for a change. You know, the comedy zones and all the other one-nighters that were out there. So I kind of had to play them all kind of against each other. to, And in the meantime, gathered some valuable experience. Are you from D.C. originally? No, I'm from Richmond, Virginia is my hometown. Okay. And um, how did you end up? Well, you were in the corporate world. I mean, what was that? What were you doing? Uh, I think I started out in the pharmaceutical business. That was just over-the-counter retail kind of shit. And then I got into the sporting goods business. So I was the Middle Atlantic Asics Tiger rep, and I sold tennis rackets and vast hiking boots. And then the, I changed agencies, and then we ended up picking up a couple of soccer lines, and ultimately we were handling Adidas towards the end. So I was the Middle Atlantic Adidas rep, so I carried... Every footwear and apparel and sold to everybody. It was pretty cool. But that business kind of went through its up and down cycle. Um, mail order was kind of on its way and big box retailers were coming in. That kind of changed the nature of the business. So there was time, it was time for a change back then. So, you know, I got out of that and bounced around, did a few other things and then just finally said, you know, I think it would be better to try to fail at something horribly to get it out of my system, which was either doing this TV writing thing or doing comedy. I just had to do it so that I didn't always regret it. I didn't want to be that guy who was hanging around the barbecue grill when he's 65 going, yeah, I could have played pro ball, but you know, I bagged it and went to work at the gas station or what, you know, whatever. So I just wanted to get it out of my system. So like what, 18, 19 years later here, here we are. Were you always, was you, did your stand-up always include playing music, or was mm-hmm. it... so? Okay, so when did you add the whole musical element to it? Well, in the beginning, it was straight stand-up, and then very quickly, I was adding some character voices in there, just because I guess I was getting bored with it. So I did everything from Yoda to Clint Eastwood to Rod Serling, just all just corny crap all over the place, just, you know, whatever it took to build, you know, a 30-minute set, but it was more fun to dick around. And, there was, and then quickly figured out that Instead of trying to explain to people it was the Twilight Zone, I figured out very quickly on this Rod Serling bit it was easier to play the Twilight Zone theme sort of as a preface to it. You know, you hear that do-do-do-do-do-do. Right. Or like when Yoda was going to come out, it'd be the first six bars of the da-da-da, you know, John right, Williams. Right, right, so right. people would be instantly brought in, and that kind of rang a bell. And I don't know how it all happened, but I remember I was in Texas in Midland, Odessa, and I'd been working on this bit where it was uh, – three guys who were stoners from the rock world. So it was Joe Walsh, Tom Petty, and Bob Dylan. And I wasn't actually playing. I think I had a fake guitar up there, but there were backing tracks, and it it got a really different reaction that night. I remember I did it at the close of a set. 
And I thought, hmm, that's kind of interesting. So then naturally everything gravitated to that. I mean, it took several years before it became that. And then it was all just singing, really, uh, since I was just kind of a vocal impressionist. And then at some point, you know, too many people were like, hey, it's not karaoke night, quit jerking off the audience and all that. And I thought, well, maybe I should just put a guitar in there and fail horribly. So I mean, you're a pretty good guitarist now, so did you... You're very... Thank you, but I think I just kind of chip away at it. But I brought one guitar into the show, and I I thought it was better to actually demonstrate to the crowd I was willing to, you know, play it instead of dicking around with it. And so then one guitar led to two, then to three, then to four, and I mean, the act just went through a zillion changes. And then, of course, you... You gravitate from being a feature act to headliner, and then from there it went to doing one-man shows where it was 90 minutes doing the full-time. And now it's like I was telling you guys earlier, it's like a midlife crisis. It's like, you know, I bring sound and lights. So it's really more of like kind of like a a rock show, almost like Weird Al meets Hairball out of the Twin Cities. You know, it's just really weird. It's just like corny lyrical changes, nothing serious. But there's propage and there's live guitars playing and there's music and stuff. So it's just this complete train wreck of all this crazy shit. And, you know, people come out. They seem to have a good time with it. I mean, it's different for sure. I mean, I looked at your schedule, dude. You're working every weekend. So it's working. Whatever you're doing is not. I uh, guess. I think because I'm the only one nutty enough to haul around all this shit to put it all on, you know. It took a long time to figure out many different things. Well, first of all, you have to bring your own sound if you're going to be playing in a multitude of alternate venues that are not clubs that don't have their own sound. So if you're in VFWs or FOEs out in the Midwest or you're in a ballroom in a hotel, in a hotel, uh, you have to bring something that can get, you know, if they can't hear you, it's never going to work. So right. I learned that early on. And then a couple of years ago I said, well, you know, the old can up on the ceiling doesn't really work for the lights thing. So now I have, uh, you know, uh, two towers of LEDs that I bring out, which is cool because like John, your sound guy and I were talking tonight. It's like, you know, I bathe the stage in blue light before the show and people come in. They're like, oh, what's right. happening? I mean, it's right. so cool. I have you, the best you, time with it. And then I have some chases loaded in when I'm doing my own lights that move and just do different crap throughout the show. And then there's, you know, static bright light. But now it's a turnkey thing. So I can go anywhere. Tom's backyard a ballroom VFW, I don't have to be dependent on knowing that, you know, they've got what I need to do the show. I can deliver the show and I have to be able to do that consistently in order to, you know, just pull it off. It saves them the headache having to rent it or get a technician in. You know, they always go, well, we got Jimmy, you know, who's our sound guy on the weekends. Yeah. And he'll work it for you. And Jimmy usually blows. He's like a DJ, you know, he's not really a sound guy. Jimmy sucks. Yeah. (laughs) He's rock club guys are cool, but guys like that are horrible and they don't do you any good. So, right. No, it, I mean the last and for you, you're real, you're the one who's fucked if you show up and you can't put a show together. I mean, you know. So I totally get it being independent like that. You have to. So when you, I mean, now this weekend, um, you know, we're here in Hendersonville. It's New Year's. We're doing, you know, three headlining comics. It's kind of a crazy idea. Everyone's doing forty five minutes, which I felt <laughs> when I watched you set up for three hours, knowing you're doing forty five minutes and you got to get your shit out of there and. 10 or 15 minutes so we can get somebody up onto a naked set. I was just like, man, that's a lot of work, you know? So first of all, you should know how much I appreciate you being here. Uh, But usually you said you do like one man shows and stuff. So when you go, when I look at your schedule and I'm on your website and um, what is your website, by the way? So people can find you if they want. Jackwillheight.com. Willheight is spelled W-I-L-L-H-I-T-E. So it's www. 
jackwillheight.com. Of course, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, all that crap too. But. Yeah, well, we'll make sure that on our website they can find Thank you. you. You know, yeah. Appreciate it, man. Um, but uh, so I just wanted to get a sense, like, normally you're not doing a 45 minute set. I mean, normally you're. I'm it. I'm the whole. You're the whole show. Bag bag of worms. Yeah. But there's there's mechanics to that that, that a lot of people may or may not see. Um, where I, and I actually have an agent now that handles most of that booking for me. She handles a few bands, me, and I've turned her on to a few comics at the same time. But the way we really kind of found our way in was um, a lot of these like bars and VFWs and stuff maybe two and a half years ago were booking karaoke a couple of nights a week and were moaning about the high cost of bands. Many cases they were not doing comics. So we figured out well, why don't we kind of perform like a dual function right. and take up the time and, and and put ourselves financially up between somewhere between a karaoke show and a band? And it'll just be something different. I mean, we're not going to be in there every week, but they, you know, these various places may try us once or twice, you know, and right. break it up by 12 months. So what we do is, you know, I play much like John does here, about a half hour pre-show music and, you know, the lights are all blue and it looks like a rock show is going to start. And then I come out and there's some conversation in the beginning and I do some characters and there's set up between them and you'll see that tonight. But then when, once the 90 minutes of my performance is all over, um, then I'll, I spend more playlist music that's, I have some country stuff, I have some 70s and 80s, just solid classic rock shit that everybody's going to like, George Thurgood, ACDC, whatever. And so then it, what we found is just magically that seems to keep people in their seats drinking when there's stuff going on. All right, and some yeah. of these venues sometimes want to turn on their jukebox when these jerks want to put crying their beer music on at two in the morning, which doesn't move any alcohol. But while my list is playing for another hour and a half or two hours, people are drinking. I mean, they're doing their thing, you know, and right. it gets, so it keeps them there. So we feel like we are trying to work in concert with uh, uh, the venue people to help them make money and at the same time make money ourselves and then entertain them and give them something that's a little bit different. So it's not just like setting up and you do your show and you go by and you walk out, you know, you're hanging around, you're schmoozing with them, you're going around. There's a whole science to how it works. And, you know, you're out there on the wire. I mean, this is a weird thing. I don't think, I mean, there, I have a few friends that are doing this sort of thing, but they are straight stand-up acts or they're magic acts or whatever, and they produce a lot of their own stuff, but it's riskier, but the rewards are, are greater for it too. You have 100% control over what you do. You print your own posters, you handle your press releases, you do your own social media, you print up your tickets, you do everything. So it's like, you know, running your own business, you get to choose exactly which 80 hours a week you want to work. You <laughs> yeah. know, whereas in the, you yeah. know, working for, you know, the booking operation supposedly, you know, they handle all that for you in many cases, sometimes they don't, but you know, they sometimes cursory put do the posters and do a little online stuff. But, you know, if you're promoting your thing, you got to get out there. So it's, you know, a lot like a band. You see how these young bands coming up, you know, they got to put shit on telephone poles and stuff. I don't have to do that. But right. yeah, yeah. they have posters and they get out and they hoof it and they promote. And, you know, you just that's what you got to do. So it's a different angle. I, I mean, I guess I'm lucky because I do the music side of it. It enables me to get into a lot of places that might not normally ever look at stand up by itself. Right. So I'll play rock clubs. And um, it can attract an older crowd that sometimes to these VFWs and stuff that might not normally 
they might think comedy is offensive and they don't want to go see it. But if it's music, oh, how bad could it be? Right. And then they come out. And so, is yours pretty clean? Is your act pretty clean? Yeah, I think it's pretty clean. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I call it a PG-17 show. <laughs> I mean, I hate it when parents are, have kids in a place. Uh, why they would have a kids for a show like mine, I don't know. Right. But, you know, I might, you know, reference going to the bathroom or weed or drinking or something. But there's no... Uh, explicit profanity or talking about body parts or anything like that. So right. I think I have a pretty tame act compared to the masses Yeah, when it's all said and done. Yeah. I mean, that's the key. Well, one of the keys anyways, is at least having a clean act. You don't have to only do that, but you got to have it. That's, that's what I hear from everybody, you know? Yeah. It's, it's always nice to have that. Uh, now I do have friends who say, well, dude, that's why I book my own shows. Cause I'm a triple X rated. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. Right. Screw them kind of thing. But how often do they work? To, well, they work a lot because they hoof it on their own, but right. they're, you know, they're limited where they can go. I mean, they're going to be in the roughest clubs, strip bars, you know, some really right, heavy right, duty right. places. Like two years ago, I got lucky enough that a guy called me up and he said, hey, we got this thing going. We got an illusionist that's playing in the Lincoln, Nebraska Civic Center for 2000 kids that have just been to see Santa Claus there at the Civic Center. And and." We were. It was recommended that maybe you could come out and do twenty minutes up in front of that show, and I'd worked with the guy that booked it, and he said, "Well, God, I loved your show. I saw that last week." He said, "Well, why don't you do this bit, this bit, this bit, and this bit, and you're done." And I mean, those are clean bits. Right. So yeah, it worked great. It was a great payday, and yeah, you know, the kids didn't give a squat, but the parents were getting into it. You right, know, right, it was right. cool. So, but the parents were comfortable with the idea that it wasn't graphic. It was like, you know, yeah, right. I mean, they're no, part, part of enjoying themselves is knowing they don't have to worry about. What's yeah. No FN or Z yeah. words. I mean, there's nothing worse than when, you know, the parents think it's going to be clean and somebody drops something horrible at the beginning of the show and everybody just stands up and walks out. Yeah. 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 No, I know. I, uh, one of my comedian friends, he's black guy was in Greenville last night. He does this whole joke about his son is, uh, listening to rap and all these rap songs have the N word. And he's like, you know, now, I don't know how I feel about you, you know, listen to songs with the N-word. I don't want you using the N-word. He's like, you know, you're biracial. So I don't know if it's the black guy and you using the N-word or the white guy, because that makes a big difference to me. You know? <laughs> That's such a great joke. You Messing know? with a guy's head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really, really funny. So uh, this, this comedian, he's one of my favorite of the locals. You know, he's just, he's he does a lot of great stuff that brings you right into his that's world. That's really cool. But not in a way that's like, you know, scary for white people. You know, it's more like it's uh, um, scary. Well, you know, I mean, it's it's. I think it's an art. I mean, this is true for all of us on stage, right? I mean, we're trying to give people some insight into our world, which is different from their world, without putting a wall up between us. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I'm Jewish and living in the South, and the moment I mention I'm Jewish on stage, and you won't see it as much here because there'll be more Jewish people in this audience or just Jew friendly, <laughs> but like. Last night when I did it, I apart from the woman who I think maybe runs it, I don't know if she married a Jewish guy or not, but I'm pretty sure she's Jewish. Apart from her, like when I just mentioned being Jewish, the whole room had this silence come over it, you know. And then later on, I referenced, I said, you know, silence is what racism sounds like. And then I went on with what I was saying. And <laughs> and so, uh, especially these days, I think that's, that's really like, I think I'm, I'm a little hyper aware of that right now, you know. Anyway, uh it's fascinating, you know, so I can always feel like, how do I make being Jewish funny to non-Jewish people? And 
give them some insight into our culture in a way that they can relate to it, even though they're not, you know, that's, that's the it, task. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm always, and make it humorous. Yeah. In right. The process. Yeah. I mean, you know, most of my stuff's very funny to Jewish people, but I was going to say are, you kill in the cat. If I'm just, you know, a hundred years too late. I know I have some pieces that I do that even if they're not about being Jewish, they're just that sort of sensibility that I just know goes back to the Borscht Belt kind of stuff, you know, <laughs> and, and it, but it's lost. <laughs> Just lost. But was it Seinfeld South. went and got booked down in the Catskills for some gig and he just ate it? They just didn't really they take his him. shit. That's Dennis funny. Miller was like, dude, he says, listen, that's not where you want to be killing it. All right. <laughs> he said, you did fine. You just survived it. They're not going to love you from where you are. That's funny. Yeah, that's uh, that's perfect. I did, oh, man. I must not remember that. Is that where he went to the diner and they like <laughs> insisted on having a uh, a picture of him on the wall? Uh, I'm not sure. Not sure. Hey, look who's here. It's Spanky. Yeah. What's up, man? That's okay. We'll catch up with you in a bit, man. Do you need anything? All right. You can talk. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, if anyone's going to come in, Spanky's cool. There you go. Uh, so, anyhow, so I can just... I can just understand from the perspective of parents bringing their kids to a show, if they feel like they can do it and it's not going to... Um, be something that they don't want their kids to hear, you know, that's great to be able to offer that. It, it, it's cool to do that. I know my agent and I struggle with this on a regular basis where she is really polite word in, in a business sense on my case to say, look, I can book you in daytime festivals and state fairs all over the Midwest, but you got to have like a kid friendly act. And right. I'm like, I'm not Raffi. I'm going to draw the line on that. And I know it, it's a hard-headed attitude, but I just don't want to be playing little tunes about jumping frogs and horses and, you know, all that stuff, you know. So the frog, frog, and the, you know, whatever, you know. I just don't want to be saying, getting kids, come on, kids, gather around. We're going to play some music now. Yeah, you're not that I want to keep it adult, yeah. you know. But, um, yeah, those guys that can play two kids, you know, and, and, and particularly in family shows, I mean, they work these state fairs and they make a huge amount of money. I mean, if you can keep your sanity at the end of the day. I think I would. I mean, I don't know. Who knows where I'll... See, that's where what I... What I'll do, but I just, I can't imagine no. feeling like that's why I got into this. No, you know? no. See, I think I'd hang myself if that's what I had to do. I mean, you know, if you, you do what you have to do, but that's just not the audience that I want to be known for. I don't want to be... You know the Wiggles or something like that. I mean, because yeah. if you want to do that and you and you dig that, go be on TV somewhere. You have your own show or be a character on one of those shows. You probably make great money doing working one of those things. But if you're doing live performing, you know, if you can just keep it above board so that you're like the evening entertainment. Right. Mainly, whenever the drink, the drinking and the drugs thing is a thing that I just don't want to leave out. I mean, you're going to have to talk about it. You know, drinking in various places, maybe smoking a little weed. That's going to be at bike rallies and late night crowds and beer tents at fairs and stuff. I mean, you just cannot be Jerry Seinfeld so squeaky clean, I don't think, and work those environments where the crowd's a little less controlled and whatnot. Right. You, I think that's going to be tough. Now, if you're in comedy clubs, of course, you know they'll throw anybody out that's giving you a hard time. Right. I mean, I'm sure people can find, well, you know, Seinfeld's a good example. I mean, you know, he runs completely clean. Brian Regan does. They do great. I, that's a real skill, man. Super, super skill. And yeah. I don't mean that you have to slip into profanity, but you might be touching on subjects that are, oh, know, yeah. Lu Louis C.K. will talk about sex or sexuality or whatever, because he wants to just explore that. But it's not, uh, in my opinion, what I've seen graphic on his part. But I don't know, dude. Wait till you see his new set. 
Oh, well, it's, I haven't caught that yet. Yeah, it's, uh, he was working on it. He came to Asheville and did two unannounced nights in the Orange Peel, which holds like 400 people. Oh, shit. And with zero publicity, except he sent a letter out on his, you know, to his mailing list. Yep. Both shows sold, uh, three shows sold out in half an hour. Did I say sold out? Sold out <laughs> in half an hour. Uh, and uh, luckily, a friend of mine went and stood online for four hours to get the oh tickets. Oh, my you know? God. Are you kidding me? It was incredible. But it was incredible, you know, because he's... He's. It was like one of the first times that he performed this material, and and uh, you know everybody recorded. He's like, look, I know you guys are recording this. Uh, I'm not gonna stop you. I'm not gonna pretend you're not doing it. Just do me a favor. Don't fucking put it on YouTube, all right? Because I got nothing to do all day. And I'll sit there and I'll find you and I'll shut down your YouTube account. You know, you want to share with your friends. You want to listen to it, whatever. But I'm 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 gonna turn this into a special, and if you put it out there, it's gonna ruin it for me. So just please don't. You know, don't be an asshole. And then went on with his show. And I thought that was so cool. You that know? is cool. And so I, I say that because a friend of mine recorded the first night that I wasn't there. Another friend of mine recorded the night that I was there. And they're like, you know, iPhones in the pocket. That's how good they sound. And uh, But it was really cool to listen to his first set, you know, the, the first night and the second night, second set. So it's now the, the third time he's done this. And already he's grown the material tremendously. Like it's already dialed in significantly from... You know, in in twenty four hours, and from set one to set three, like very cool. That was amazing. So you'll, but anyway, you'll you'll uh, you'll enjoy it when it comes out. It's <laughs> it's really good. Uh, well, and definitely graphic. But. Uh, you know, enough said about those that you know can work clean or whatever. So bring it back. I'm PG seventeen. You yeah. Know? So I'm not gonna blow people out of their seats because it's graphic. But you know, I will touch on some adult subjects and whatnot. Well, you're an adult. Yeah, I mean, that's my thing. You know, it's like you, I mean, how do you not, I mean, I don't, I mean, whatever people are able to do successfully, I'm fine with. But I mean, like for me, I'm, I'm talking about, especially now, cause I'm still pretty new at this, you know, I'm, I'm talking about what's happening now and how it relates and trying to make it funny and make it that people can project themselves into it or choose not to, cause they really don't want it once they hear it. Right. But whatever it is, it's like, but it's working that. So there's enough subjectivity that it's authentic and enough objectivity that it's relatable. I mean, I feel like that's the, that's feel right to me. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but that to me feels like the, the tightrope I'm walking. That's it. And then it goes back to your whole failure thing. I mean, you got to go out and just, you know, have it flop and, you know, and then put it back to break it apart and put it back together again until you figure out how it makes it work. Yeah. Yeah. I had a set last night cause I've been, I've been performing every night this week, getting ready for this weekend. Because this weekend's a big deal for me. I want to make sure that I do a good job. It's my third time performing here, but they have a lot of the same people come. So I want I do a completely fresh set. And it's only 10 minutes, but my, at my level, that's like writing a new special. Sure <laughs> you know? is. I got to burn through a lot of stuff that no, doesn't work before man. I can do 10 minutes that does. And I was only here, you know, six weeks ago. So... Uh, I've been working it all week. And last night, I was, you know, riding pretty strong in a room that was not really getting me fully uh but some of it they did uh and then i just completely lost it about eight and a half minutes in you know and the woman the booker at the end we were having drinks after she's like yeah i just watched it unravel about the last 90 seconds i just watched you fall apart and you know i was just laughing my ass off um but it was fine i mean it's not a big deal but it was just sort of funny you know it's like that was rough, you know, and I was like, I, and I literally like forgot how to end the joke. And I told them, I was like, I have no idea what I was about to say next. And they were like shouting out lines and things that I'd said, trying to help jog my memory, which was cool. Cause they were right there with me. 
Uh, but I was like, no, nah, it's gone. I'll just do something else. Oh, that's never happened to anybody else. Yeah, only stage. me, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I remember <laughs> driving cross country one time to work the uh, House of Blues in Myrtle Beach for the Comedy Zone. And it was really stupid. I mean, I think I drove cross country with maybe a total of six hours of sleep. So I remember I got on stage and your brain is always playing these games where it's like trying to screw you up and, you know, it'll go, oh, guess what? We're going to forget the first half of your act. So literally I got out on stage and I got into my first joke and I couldn't remember the where it went after that and i was kind of just stuck there for a minute so i kind of circled the airplane for about 30 seconds and finally everything kind of clicked back in i think it was probably the sleep deprivation but yeah that'll happen to the best of you and you're just like oh no not now yeah you know and you just can't remember where you're going or how to get out of it so you just you know just stir the pot and just kind of glide for a little bit until you figure out what's happening well i mean i you know i i don't beat myself up at all for this stuff happening i feel like especially for me i mean i'm this is all just learning for me mm -hmm. you know um and i'm building my craft and i'm starting late in life and and uh so and also i i noticed like i mean i have a kid i just got a dog like i don't get enough sleep and you mentioned sleep deprivation that's fucking huge for memory so i mean i'm you know going up with all these young kids everyone i meet on the comedy circuit is in their 20s maybe 30s i'm 47 you know so I'm I'm easily old enough to be some of their fathers, and they like to remind me of that. <laughs> and I mean, it would have been a, a young dad, but it could have happened. And you know, I just realized like their minds are young enough just to remember more stuff. Like it's just harder for me to remember shit, even if I made it up. And so that's been interesting. You know, I've been dealing with that a lot lately. I'm like, where the fuck did that go? But you have such a tremendous, richer pool of crap to draw from. Oh for, yeah, 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 for material yeah. too. It's like I always say, you go to these alt rooms where these 20-year-old kids are in there. Totally cool, man. Do your own thing. But you know, how many weed jokes can you tell and sex jokes? And then you're kind of done. Yeah. You know, you haven't had kids, no mortgages, no broken relationships, job screw-ups and whatnot. So I just find that, you know, people that move midlife and beyond have got a much richer pool of things to put into the blender to try to discuss. Well, that also relates to a wider audience as right. well. The thing that always has happened to me is when I've worked places where they insist on having an opener, this goes back years, um, and they would put like, you know, a 22-year-old kid up in front of me and the median age of the crowd is, I don't know, I mean, the, the crowd's running like 33 to 55. And, you know, a 20-year-old kid goes out there and they're not mean to him at all. Yeah. You just don't relate to anything that he's talking about. Meanwhile, then the next night we're in like some cowboy bar with all 20 year olds drinking and he's great and I suck. Right, right, right. Yeah. No, I know. There have been nights that I've been in rooms with younger people and, and uh, they just, they don't get it. If I talk about my daughter, I talk about parenting, you know, Louis C.K. has mastered talking about parenting in a way that college students think it's funny, but he talks about it in their language. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I don't, I don't do that. You know, plus I don't want to be him. You know, I mean, I'd I'd love to be him if he wasn't already him, but it's <laughs> it's too late. Uh, although Julie Scoggins, you know her? Are you friends with her? Mm -hmm. So uh, she was the last performer we had here, and when she saw me on stage, she took a picture and then posted on Facebook that Louis C.K.'s younger cousin was opening for her. You know, because I look a little <laughs> like him when I'm on stage. It's pretty funny. So I was like, I only, I wish I was like, you could have tagged him. You know, maybe he would have seen it. Classic man. So very cool. So tell me, like, what is uh, what is one of your just fucking nightmare on the road? I mean, you've been on the road for 20 years, right? I mean, that's pretty yeah. incredible. Are you in a relationship or have you had a family or what's what's that yeah, situation? Yeah, I've had a, I mean, I've got kids. You've got kids? Yeah. And uh, a relationship, sure. 
and it, none of that's been affected by road travel in oh, the really? long run. Oh. Well, you know, I you know, I got into comedy later. So, I mean, I think if you get into it in your 20s, you know, and you're used to doing all kinds of crazy shit, I mean, I think you get that stuff out of your system pretty quickly when you're in comedy. So, no problem there whatsoever. And when you said nightmares, you mean from a performance standpoint? Yeah, from, well, yeah well, from any, really. I mean, just, you know, it's just kind of some kind of a story that's like, um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's... There's it, plenty of them. Yeah. Well, I can remember one time, I mean, this goes back to a lot of different things. I was working for a guy that was a booker up in British Columbia and he paired me up with another comic who we were both features at best, probably had 35 minutes of material apiece. So he sent us out as a two man team and we worked on the Island of Vancouver. We worked like three shows there. And then we were going to come back to Vancouver, British Columbia, the city Vancouver. And from there we were going to play three interior dates is what they call it. So I'm not sure whether the other guy really got sick or just didn't like me or was whatever his problem was. He just decided he wasn't going to go do it the last three shows. So the booker just called me up and he said, all right, look, no problem whatsoever. He said, just go do these last three shows. You can do the whole 90 minutes, take all the money, do a joke off at the end if you need to do it. I'm like, I only have 35 fucking minutes of material. So... In Canada, supposedly the deal is is that uh, unlike food being served in the United States to allow you to keep your liquor license, I think many uh, provinces up there, if you have entertainment on stage, that's an, that legally if they do that, then they're able to serve liquor by the drink. Or they have to serve a minimum amount of entertainment so that it's just not people right. just power drinking in there. So I remember the first place I went that night, there were probably 150 people in there, and I got up on stage there, and oh my God, like I'm stretching, stretching, stretching emptying everything I had in my case, everything out of my notebooks. And I got the 90 minutes done. It was ugly. And by the end of the night, I'd walked the entire room, except for <laughs> one person. I did the same thing the second you night. You <laughs> yeah, that was it. Second night, same thing. And literally, it's just like, okay, so I'm going to get that light cord and I'm going to string myself up in the bathroom tonight and it'll all be over. And it'll be, I mean, just like you were just ready to hang it all up. But then by the third night, and I mean, every day I was like rewriting. By the third night, I was playing a smaller crowd of about 40 or 50 in a hotel lounge area. And I managed to keep them there. I did the whole 90 minutes. I'm not saying it was pretty, but I mean, this is where the failure thing, you just either pull it together and just try to make it work or routine it or whatever you do to it to make it work. So somehow I managed to keep them all that night and they were moderately happy and it was like such a relief, but I just remember walking that entire room of 150 people wow. I mean, and being asked to do something I had no capability of doing. Yeah, yeah. You know, do an hour and a half, you know. That's so, huge. Yeah. Did you ever read Billy Crystal's book? Yes, I did. So remember that story where he's opening for like uh, some band? Um, I don't remember. Some huge band, like cheap. I mean, it wasn't cheap trick, but it was like that, you know, mm -hmm. kind of audience. And uh, they got in a fight in the back, you know, so he came out and he did his open and he went back and the band wasn't ready. And the producer's like, I'll give you 75 bucks. Go, you know, talk to me. He's like, I already did all my material. So he did the exact same set again. Oh, that's right. You know? That's right. You know, and then he comes back and the producer's like, they're still not ready. You got to go out one more time. He's like, you got to be kidding me. They hate me out there. You know, they're throwing shit at me. And he's like, you got to do it, man. Here's another hundred bucks. And, you know, and, and he went out and I don't remember what he did for the third set. I think he just did audience work, but he was pretty new and had to, you know, do that. And, and they really wanted to see the band. So in addition to, you know, like what you're describing of having to stretch, they just, 
they did not want him up there, and they yeah, were get off. Pissed. Lenny yeah. Bruce talking about working in strip clubs. They don't want to see you. Right, right. They're there. They to want see the strippers. chicks. Yeah, get off. You suck. You know that. Which and if you can pull them in, yeah, then you really know you're doing well. Yeah, if you can really hone that skill. Yeah, yeah. Oh that's a hard God, room. That would be horrible. I feel so lucky to be starting when I'm starting. Like, it's. I feel like you know. It's not that I'll be guaranteed to succeed any more than anybody else is, and there's certainly a lot more people now, so there's just a lot more noise out there. Mm -hmm. But I'm part of the noise, so I can't mm -hmm. complain about it. But, you know, there's alt rooms set up. I mean, I've been doing this a year and a half. I'm already booking my, you know, I've been hired to book here and host here regularly because, you know, I'm solid enough for that, and and, and I'm a grown-up, so I can handle it, you know? <laughs> um, and, you know, I just feel like, it's the same feeling I had when I went to India a few years ago. And it was a new airport and there was a new highway and the person who, you know, I went with, I met her there, you know, she's been going there for 30 years. So she had a driver pick us up at the airport. I mean, otherwise you're arriving at Mumbai in the middle of the fucking night and you got to figure out how to go four hours oh, to another town. Oh my God. And, and I'm just like, when these people showed up in the seventies, cause I'm in the yoga world also, this is my whole yoga life. When you, when they showed up in the seventies, there was nothing. There was no one, you know, and they had to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And now I go there and I'm complaining because I got to walk 15 minutes, you know, to the <laughs> yoga institute. I just don't quite like where my apartment is, you know, oh, but I've got hot water God. and everything I could possibly want. And and I feel the same way about comedy. I feel like, you know, guys like you and even, you know, I mean, if you've been doing it 20 years, then you're also grateful to some of the guys like. Seinfeld have been at it for 40 years, you know, like who really laid the groundwork and Lenny Bruce, who those people who really, mm -hmm. they really took the bullet for us before there were clubs, you know, before mm -hmm. there was anything. It just now it's, it just seems like easy street by comparison. Yeah. yeah, it was all nightclubs and stuff for them. I mean, I remember being out in San Francisco and going to the Hungry Eye, which is where Bill Cosby used to work and right. then it's a strip club and topless bar, whatever you want to call it. That was the only places those guys had until, um, I think shutters became the improv up in New York down in the village. And mm -hmm. I guess that was Bud Friedman and right. then the comedy store in 74. And then after that, it just exploded. And, but you're right. More places not only know what comedy is, it's not having to establish itself as an art form anymore. Right. So people know what it is and then they're willing to put it on figuring that it's just yet another cog in the entertainment wheel that they're willing to put on if they've got seats and a microphone and a stage area which is good whereas yeah. back in the 60s they nobody really kind of knew what it was and yeah i mean right i mean if you i'm sure richard Pryor told his family he's gonna well i didn't care they were they were a mess anyway but you know <laughs> i mean someone of that era saying yeah i'm gonna be a comedian they're like what's a comedian yeah you really know? my, my family's just like all right, <laughs> you know, are you sure? I mean, how are you going to pull are you that sure? off? Yeah, but but at least they know what one is. I mean, and 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 my mom is funny. At first, she was really she was like kind of her usual Jewish mother self. You know, are you sure this is a good idea? And you you really need to keep a day job and all this stuff. I'm like, I know that, mom. You know, like, <laughs> I'm not. I haven't just shit canned my life yeah. and gone on the road in a VW bus. You right. know, like. I'm doing this. And I mean, I actually like booked a therapy appointment with me and her and our therapist so I could talk to her about it in a way that would be constructive. And with I your just... mom? Oh, yeah. Because I was like, we do that when in our family when there's like something that immovable. Because otherwise we just end up in a fight, you know. Right. But one session with a good therapist and we're through it, you know. And, really? and, uh, and now she's like, I, so when I decided I'm signing, I signed up for the. 
Comedy Zone comedy school, you know, and she helped okay. pay for it. And she's like, she's sending me all these articles on comedy. She's super into comedy now, you know, and she's always, she's she's like gone almost, it, I would say it was annoying if it wasn't so helpful. Like, it's much better to have her on this end of it where she's- Yeah, she's supportive. That's she's good. Totally supportive. Yeah. That's good. I mean, she also like, you know, she's a little concerned. I mean, I got a nine-year-old and, you know, I have 50% custody and, yeah. you know, there's a lot of reasons to, to hope that I don't just- hit the road and not look back and I'm certainly not going to leave my kid but I've been able to you know I've arranged our custody and everything so that as I evolve as a comic I'll be able to be on the road half the year if I want to and not sacrifice being her dad you know that's good um so but I don't know how you fit in a relationship unless you're already in one like any of the women I've dated since starting comic being a comedian you know or starting I didn't even call myself that yet but performing comedy you know they're like I don't know. I mean, if you succeed at this, you're going to be gone half the time. And it's a lot it doesn't easier. sound that interesting to me. <laughs> it's a lot easier now that you've got, you know, cell phones and Skype and all that stuff. Can you imagine what it was like in the old days before phone cards? I mean, where guys yeah. were like, uh, I like to make a collect call to Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> uh, that's just, you know, I don't yeah. even know how those guys were keeping it together back then. Well, they, a lot of them probably weren't. Probably, yeah, probably weren't. They could hide behind that, maybe. But you know, nowadays yeah. it's a lot easier to do FaceTime and stay in touch with everybody. Yeah, totally. Yeah, much cooler, instantaneous. I know it's crazy. Um, of course, you hang up and it feels farther away, but yeah, well, yeah. Yes, but it's, it's still, a circus you know, family. How do you think they did it in the past? You know, that's why I tell my kids we're like a circus family. How many kids do you have? Two. Two, and how old are they? Twenty-six male and seventeen-year-old female. Oh boy. So, yeah, they're pretty well used to me. Well, see, I traveled back in my sales days as well. Now, it was just out for a day or two. It wasn't right. like, you know, a couple of weeks like it is now. But, uh, there, I mean, I think there was a time there when I was moving, well, towards the tail end of being exclusively a feature where, you know, depending on where I went, I mean, I'd be gone six to eight weeks at a time. That that was too freaking long. And yeah. nowadays, I just try to make a, a mental effort to it to just maybe be gone at the most maybe two maybe three and then i gotta cycle back even if it's 20 hours each way and it's just a couple of days on the deck just because i gotta show up and just be you know a parent so yeah i know julie says she spends one week a month at home for marriage conservation she calls it <laughs> yes she has told me that before. <laughs> yeah that's just that's perfect for phrasing yeah that's good for her that's good. yeah i mean and in the beginning, it's hard to do. I mean, how do you how do you say, well, I'm not available that week when you're up and coming? You got to just be available, I'd imagine, right? I mean, I mean, it's all about getting as much stage time as you can, and yeah. hopefully getting paid while you're doing it. You know, to establish yourself. How long did it take you before you went from? Well, you, I mean, it sounded actually like from the get go, you were at least getting paid a little bit, right? Pretty quickly. You well, yeah, let's yeah, like well, that. yeah, let's be honest. The pay scales haven't changed much in twenty years through the comedy club business per yeah. se, outside of special events. So, you know, if you were doing guest sets, obviously those are free. Emceeing was nothing. You know, feature work back in the day at you know what a hundred a, a set. I mean, it, that was starvation. But you have to all things relative. Gasoline was a lot cheaper back then. Health insurance was a lot cheaper back then. You didn't have cell phone bills to deal with every month. So. You know, you could kind of struggle and make it a little bit as a feature. Nowadays, I think that's almost impossible, uh, unless you have a significant other that earns a decent living or you're well-to-do or whatever that might be. Now, the flip side of this, I think, in most towns that you're in, you can probably find a lot more comedy 
than you could back then. You know, if, if I just look at my snippet back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I mean, I can remember I wanted to get hired by uh, one of the improv franchises out of Cleveland at the time. So I drove 10 hours to Cleveland, did a guest set, and then drove all the way back to Richmond the other, you know, the 10 hours the next day. Um, I got two weeks out of it, which, right. you know, ended up paying for that. But, um, you know, nowadays, I mean, Richmond has its own little mini comedy scene. So, you can, I mean, there just was no scene in Richmond back then. Now there is, right. you know, and there's more in other towns too. So I think you can cut your teeth much faster with, you know, alt rooms and coffee houses. I was lucky enough that the people that I got hooked up, you know, we, we would just do guerrilla comedy up and we'd drive up to Washington, D.C. and then we'd, we'd land in three different shows and then we'd, like I said, we'd end up in a coffee shop and then we'd go do time on the subway system for people that had no interest in what we were doing just right. to just to do it. I mean, we were just doing it where we could do it. And, you know, it's more, better, faster. What is it? It's like aiming a gun. It's like uh, shoot, aim, repeat. Right. Is what that is. Yeah, you yeah. know. So, you know, you just try to, you get on the playing field and you try to see what's working and what's not working. You kind of get rid of your tweak and you stick with the stuff that's working and you add more. And then you, you know, hope people are going to hopefully pay you something to do that. And that just involved, you know, having your tapes and then you go out or you would do your guest sets for people who would take a risk on you and hire you. And if that went well, then you meet other comics at that gig who referred you to other gigs. I mean, it takes years to do that. So, I mean, like the first year that I was like, quote, a full-time comic, I mean, I might have worked 10 weeks that year. I mean, I had to supplement that with all kinds of other stuff. I mean, I was doing some TV commercials and I had to work construction at one point. Um, which was a great experience, but, you know, you need a new transmission. You're not going to come up with that kind of money in the short run unless you're swinging a hammer or doing something like that. So, you know, that was a couple of years like that. And then, you know, like your next year, it's like 15 weeks and then maybe it's 20 weeks and then it's 30 weeks and 35. And then, you know, you just keep plowing away at it if you're diligent to it to the point where you can completely fill your calendar and hopefully get your head above water at that point. And then you start trying to play better clubs or better paying gigs and, do you Just, do cruise ships? Uh, I do not. Do you want to? You know, I don't want to say that, that that wouldn't happen. I think right now, because back in those early days, there were not a lot of casinos. Once all the Native American casinos have blown onto the scene, right. that's kind of the same experience. The money's pretty good in those, and they're all over the place now. Uh, I think the thing that freaks me out is just with all the gear that I carry, I just don't know that I'm real wild about trying to push that all onto a ship yeah, and be responsible for that and then schlep it all off the ship. I realize that's probably no different from just setting it up, but I don't know. There's just something about just being on the boat for a couple of days. Uh, I don't know. It just, I've been on cruises, but for some reason that just doesn't hold a lot of interest for yeah. me. I hear the money's pretty good and I think people have a really good time on them from time to time, but. Everyone's got a different perspective on it. Some people like, you know, I mean, I, Sid Davis, I, I open for him here. He's the I first time I played here. He's a great guy. And at the time, he's like, I just want to start doing cruise ships. Like, he was excited about it. And other people have said, you know, when you're doing cruise ships, you know, you're dead as a comedian. Like, that's that's the last stop. <laughs> and I'm not saying either one is true, you know. It's just, but it's really interesting to meet people with such different perspectives on it. So I was just kind of curious. I would imagine that what you do, well, I haven't seen it yet. I'll know after tonight, but I mean. Um, we'll never talk about it. I didn't mean quality-wise. I'm sure you're good at it. I meant like in terms of just trying to imagine their uh, the appeal level. I would think that what you do would totally appeal to the kind of people who would be on a cruise. Like I would imagine Probably. you would kill it. 
Probably. Not that I'm trying to, you know, that's no, not no, my no. side gig. I'm not a, I'm not a cruise booker. No, not at all. I think, uh, I think the thing when they say the careers are over, I think a lot of people that were established in the business that got a little longer in the tooth moved to the cruise ships because the money was better. Mm. You know, and that was for the same amount of effort they could go on board the ships and get closer to making a real living. The only problem is, is that from what I hear, and I could be totally wrong on this, I just hear this from the various people like Sid and whatnot that do work it, that if they like you, they work you a lot. And so now you're not keeping your feet in the doors of the land-based club. So, uh. you know, you disappear for now a year or whatever, and then you come back and suddenly they're like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember you. I mean, that's a, an exaggeration. I think the people that probably do it best probably balance it out a little bit where they every month they're on the cruise ship for a week or two and then they do their land-based clubs. I think you have to probably keep your feet in both categories because the other thing about the cruise ships is I think uh, periodically they've demonstrated in the past, whether they do this now or not, is if they like you, they work you a lot, and then all of a sudden – Boom, they want to change their whole lineup and everybody's out the door and they start with a whole fresh new lineup and right. then you're out. And you've blown off all your That's the your way it used pies. to yeah. be. Yeah. Now, no cards and letters please from anybody saying I don't know what I'm talking about because I usually don't. But uh, that's just <laughs> what I that's just what I hear from people. So that would be frustrating, you know, you would want to chase the money and uh naturally and then if you get it's just, it's all about eggs and baskets. I mean, I learned that from the earliest ages. There were a few agencies that I worked for who I remember were of a handful of agencies. Some were representing pretty high percentages of the year. One was 15, another one was 20%, another guy was 30. And then the minute there was a burp in any of those where either they lost rooms or suddenly you were out due to a change in management or whatever, suddenly you're looking at 20 to 30% of your year going up in smoke. Right. That was a hard lesson to learn. So then I pretty much had to say, okay, nobody's getting more than about 7 or 8% so that you could lose it and still survive. So you have to be judicious about where you spread your eggs out and where you're going to work. So, yeah, if you can keep your foot in the cruise ship pool – that's pretty cool. Right. And there are various agents that handle that too. So yeah, I think that, I think the money's pretty good for what you do in those ships and they're pretty well established for having stand up. I mean, I think I heard that Carnival just recently had converted the, the back portion of the boat that traditionally was the evening comedy show into full-time comedy rooms. Wow. And in some cases, I, I think people are not having to do the main stage stuff. But again, I could be wrong on that, but I think they outfitted those rooms According to the pictures I see, it looks like George Lopez is kind of like the brand. Oh, wow. Through, you know, George Lopez presents. Yeah, yeah. So I think they've got a brand now on some of those carnival ships for comedy that people come in and look at, which I guess would be the same as Jamie Masada's Laugh Factory right. brand that he puts in some casinos like in Vegas and Reno and stuff where they just are basically like a McDonald's franchise. We met him. He was really nice to us when we were filming... Bobby's uh, documentary. Jamie, oh, really? Jamie let us film in there, and that was cool. He was great. Yeah, he was really, he was really cool to us. It was really appreciated. You know, I mean, um, I know he's been in the business long enough that you know, I'm sure he's nicer to some people than others. But he was really nice to us, and uh, we felt lucky about that. Good. Um, yeah. So, like, what's? And if I ask if I ask you any questions that you don't want to answer, you can just tell me. Just so you know, I think okay. you're doing yeah. fine. Um, but uh, you know, I've heard you say a couple times like you're chasing the money. You're the you know like if the money's good or you're doing not that you're doing it, but you've talked about the money a bit, which is understandable. I mean, that's a real piece. You you have to 
pay attention to. I never pay attention to money in my life. Well, that's good. And it's good in the beginning when you're in comedy, if you're just doing it for the money, you would look at it from a business perspective at Harvard business school and they'd go, well, let's see, you're going to go on the road now and you're going to lose $10,000. That doesn't look like a very, you know, Goldman Sachs is not going to hire you. I'm sorry. Um, at what point does that switch though? Like, so like, I mean, initially like I'm in the stage, I'm in, the, I'm in, you know, like a kind of Pollyannish phase of like, Oh, I just love performing. You That's know? good to be. Um, to a degree. I'm also like, you know, I'm old enough to be like, ah, I like to get a little bit of money here and there. It doesn't have to be a lot, but just so that I can feel like, Hey, I'm getting paid to perform, even if it's 20 or $30, mm-hmm. like I'm not just driving to another state for free all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but that, again, and then I, from right now, I just, I see it in, as a process. Like the first couple of years, I don't really have any expectation to make money. If I get paid anything at all, even if it's gas money, I consider it to be fantastic. But I'm kind of curious about the evolution. Like, so initially <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm in it for the art. You know, at some point it's like, all right, I, I want to give this a go. I need to make some money. And like, what is what do you think that number needs to look like? If you, of course, that depends on the lifestyle you're supporting. But, and then at what point do you get back to the other end where you're like, this is a paycheck, and I'm just, this is just what I do. And it, it's like, are you? Do you ever feel that way? Do you feel still feel like your soul is nourished by the work you do, or 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 is it is it a grind? You know, I I still dig it. I mean, because I'm. I'm learning stuff basically still every month. I mean, yeah. once I started to do this one man show thing, I mean, this has opened up a whole new area of expertise that, you know, we try to develop my agent and I. So, you know, we've had to, you know, think through the strategy of what we're pitching and then how to help the follow through with the venue. How much are we willing to do for them to help them, you know, the posters and point of sale materials and whatever, you know. And so, you know, to me, it's kind of cool because you're kind of learning how to, you know, you're flying the Jolly Roger. You're doing your own thing. I mean, I'm not beholden to anybody in the agency business anymore. And like I said, when you spread your eggs around, you are beholden to some of those agencies. Once you get to the point where that's all you're doing for livelihood, you know, if you have another skill and you're able to do like computer programming on the weekends and you support yourself with, you know, another twenty or $30,000 a year or whatever, then you, you don't ever have to worry about what you get paid. But, you know, when you have mortgages and kids and all that stuff, you know, you either have a day job or you're in comedy, and if you're in comedy, you, it needs to pay. Right. Unless you've got a significant other that's, you know, generating all that income and just says, go have a great time. So, um, you know, I think really I ended up going off into the one-man show business for a couple of reasons. Number one was because, uh, you know, I was just becoming... Well, I, I wanted it to be a little bit bigger and to control the sound and the lights and make it a bigger thing. And the clubs are going to limit you to what you're able to do because they don't want a whole bunch of shit on the stage. And, you know, right. you, you start to become a 800-pound gorilla in a china shop for them. But they, and then the other thing, too, was that it was really cool to um, peel back the layers and try to figure out what was going on in these various venues that we play. It's like, you know, okay, so they got bands, they got karaoke, what do we need to do? And then you build your posters. It's, there's a certain level of satisfaction to getting all that done when it works right. and it's, it's working, you know, it's pretty cool. And, uh, so really now it's, I work fewer days, but do it, you know, as well as I did probably when I worked a lot more days in the right. headline days. And, and, you know, that might've been just bare sustenance, 
at that point because again there haven't been any significant raises yeah in the standard comedy world for for average joes like you and me of course when in the celebrity end of things that's different but that's changed too since the bubble popped in 2008 you know agencies to call up clubs and demand you know a certain guarantee against a percentage of the door and blah 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 and all i hear club owners now are saying yeah i'll do a, a door deal with you but i'm not paying you any huge guarantees to get you in here Mm. Um, I think a lot of your uh, top flight guys that have a lot of probably media exposure, um, sometimes they don't necessarily are not that great as comedians sometimes. If they're just actor types right. that, you know, you can pick any of the names of guys that have either been on television shows over the years who've then become comedians. That's one type of show. If someone was a comedian from the get-go, got lucky enough to get on TV and is now still a comedian, that's another thing. And then there are people that have been in the movies and whatnot. So you just, I call them expensive meet and greets. Right kind of at our level. Because if you're Kevin Hart or you're Louis C.K., you're filling different types of venues. You're filling theaters. Louis C.K. does Stadium his own town, thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's Kevin, yeah. yeah. But Louis, you know, Louis, well, Louis booking, did the garden. I mean, yeah. And he's people, booking right? it all through his website. He doesn't use Ticketmaster yeah. or any of those guys. But that's, see, now that's cool. I like yeah. that. He's trying to keep it nominally priced and make a little dough out of it. Like when he sold his special, what was it, $5? Five bucks, yeah. For everybody. So the internet has opened up some cool opportunities to help the average guy take more control of that. You don't have to go through the gatekeepers. Yeah. Although I would, I agree. And I think like Louis CK, well, he's a little above the average guy. Like, I mean, he's able to get away with what he does because he's big enough to make it. He, he, he can make it without Ticketmaster. Like he doesn't, those guys need him more than he needs them. And, Absolutely. He's, and he's like, fuck them, you know? And is the, I heard him talk about when he, when he did this show, which I bought, because they said Louis C.K. is bankrupt. Horace and whatever. Horace and Pete, yeah. yeah. And I was like, all right, well, I'll do my $32 toward, you know, his his Kickstarter campaign to get, get him back on his feet. But, you know, I heard an interview with him. He's like, that article that said I lost all this money in the show was the best advertising in the world because, every, you know, people generally like me and they all wanted to see me be okay. So they all bought the show <laughs> to support me, you know. But he said, when I make my specials, I put them online for five bucks a piece because... If you go through Netflix, you go through Comedy Central, people in other parts of the world can't get it. So they have to steal it. And they're going to want they want to watch it, so they're going to steal it. So right. he said I make it 5 bucks. That way if you steal a $5 show, you're an asshole. You know? <laughs> He's like it's $5, so it's cheap enough that you know it's 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 more efficient for you to buy it than to steal it. So you might as well just pay for it and you can support sure. the artist and people all over the world can watch it at once. Pretty interesting thinking, you know. It's like I just love it. I mean, and I think it's partly for him. He comes from nothing. A lot of comedians I talk to come from nothing. Oh, yeah. It took him 20 plus years to get where he is. And his family was poor. He grew up poor. 20-year overnight sensation. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. So, I mean, I think he appreciates the position of somebody not having a lot of money but wanting access to, you know, great talent and experiences. Mm -hmm. And and so he's kind of let it. He he's built his business in a way that it's accessible to people who are like he was. I think that's that's part of my sense of it. I just love it. I, I mean, I don't. I love the guy. I haven't met him, but uh, everything that comes out of his mouth, I'm just like, man, he's so smart. Well, yeah. I mean, those guys are on such a different financial plane. It's really crazy. Um, I mean, and probably the most. I mean, it's a little like picture of Dorian Gray here. I mean, there are a lot of my contemporaries that are in the business. Who, you know, they're getting to a point where if they don't self-promote, 
there's fewer and fewer places to work for them these right. days. And in some cases, I'm wondering how they're surviving. You know, I mean, they, they have good acts, they're good people, but, you know, there's been a little bit of attrition in the comedy club business, little shakeouts into 2008. I think it's regrouping now that, you know, we're kind of coming out of that that era there. And I think only the, the probably the weakest clubs went under first that were probably already going to be going under when the 2008 bubble popped financially. But, um, you know, I think for most people, I mean, if they, if they don't like it anymore, obviously they're going to leave the business if they can't survive anymore. I mean, I've had a couple of friends that have had to leave the business here recently and take day jobs because they were not, you know, making it financially. And I, mean, I totally get that, man. You got to good it. enough. Do you think? Yeah, I think they were. I think they were good enough. But, you know, they're not Louis C.K. level where they're making, right. you know, six figures to millions of dollars with their TV shows and whatever. They were just good road comics that worked for most of the major booking operations, of which there are fewer now. And there's mm -hmm. always new people coming up and coming into the business. And, you know, if you haven't really done anything new in a couple of years and the business has just changed a little bit yeah. over the years. So... You know, myself and a handful of my contemporaries have sort of forged out on our own. Now, we didn't burn our bridges with the booking agencies, but we just do such a different thing where, you know, we're it for the evening. Right. I have another friend of mine that has a magician friend, and they go out and they do shows together, and they call themselves uh, Dirty Jokes and Magic Tricks. And they do like I, I do. You right. know, they're pounding on doors and working alternate venues and whatever, and they're doing okay. And they have a good show. It's funny. I mean, it's really good. It probably doesn't fit in a comedy club per se anymore. And they're able to make a little bit more money doing what they're doing. But then again, they take more responsibility to do it. So that's why, you know, I'm such a weird duck. You know, most people are probably, if they're listening to this, going, yeah, but that's so screwed up. I would never do that. Well, yeah, you're right. It is. It's a lot of work. I mean, yeah. but you do what you got to do to, because otherwise I think the way I was headed with my little thing, I was either going to be a standard guitar act, which is one pedal and one guitar and six bars of eruption at the end of the show, or I was going to take it to a different level, which is where I do it now, where it's a little bit more Weird Alish, a little bit more in-depth per song, still shorter than a, than the full song. but. Right. Well, I can't wait to see it, man. I am really not no, be I'm, drinking heavily. Can I just recommend that? <laughs> that might really help. I'm gonna be stone cold sober, so I will be okay. able to. Uh, well, I'll be able to enjoy able to, it or not enjoy it. You'll be able to assess it, and it's real. You're probably like, what? What do we do hiring this no, guy? No, man, not. I don't. I, I'm. I'm confident I won't feel that way. <laughs> Uh, and I'm more confident I won't tell you if I do feel that way. But Oh, you can tell me whatever. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm totally kidding. No, I mean, I'm really looking forward to it. And I appreciate you coming. I appreciate you making time to talk to me while My you're pleasure, here. Man. We got a Happy. lot going on this weekend. So I'm going to give you some time to get ready for your set. But thanks. Um, yeah, man. I mean, you're a cool guy. I like what you're doing. I can't wait to see the show. And uh, I'll make sure people know how to find you. Thank you. And also, you know, um, I don't know that there's anything I can do to help you, but if there is, I'm Thank I you. want to be able to. Thank do you for that, offering. You know? I appreciate that. And so uh, I know Jason, I need a car loan. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not quite there yet. Don't let these fancy mics fool you. But uh, I, you know, I just um, it's fun for me to to be meeting all these people and you know networking with these comics, uh, largely just uh, emotionally for me, like meeting people who are 20 years in to doing what I'm just now starting to do, you know, and we're probably not that far off in age. I'm 47. I don't know how old you are. But, you Early fifties. Yeah. So, yeah, so we're... you know, but you've got, I mean, in five years I'll have caught up to you in age and I'll still be 15 years behind you in experience. You know, it's like, <laughs> so it's just fun for me to, uh, it's really, really been great for me to meet people who have 
been doing this and and they've worn a path and and I feel fortunate to be able to have time to talk. We well, can you, only so. you can only learn from the seniors, and I still do too when I meet people that have been in the business thirty years and whatnot. You know, just the road stories and what they've been up to. So and it's a very small community. Yeah, comedy is a very small fraternity, and you'll quickly find out that, you know, the the entire breadth of the comedy world is you know your arms stretched completely wide, but the but the percentage of the guys that are and gals that are doing it full time, as yeah. professionals, is more like Nerf ball size. You right. know, it's a much smaller pool, and eventually you'll end up knowing pretty much everybody in that pool on probably both coasts. Yeah. And because I've been lucky enough to work both, yeah, I know a bunch of people in both places and it's pretty cool. Yeah, you're right. There's a good camaraderie to it. It's its own thing. I guess, you know, welders and uh, acrobats probably have their own little fraternal organizations. I'm where sure they, they all, must. I'm sure yeah. they must spend comedy is just another one of them. And that's all she wrote. The show must always go on, and that day was no exception. Shortly after this conversation, Jack and I hit the stage for the first of two long nights of music, comedy, and celebration. If you ever get a chance to see Jack Wilhite in concert, take it. The house will be rocking, so don't bother knocking. If you like what you heard, please visit our website, use our Amazon portal, and rate us on iTunes. Make sure you tell your friends about Learning to Fail, and if you feel so inclined, please consider making a donation on our donation page. That way, we can keep failing for years. <laughs>